God expects us to be very intentional in our pursuit of wisdom. He places a responsibility on us as believers to search out his principles for living well in a broken and fallen world. There is in this text here, just in verse 11 alone, a responsibility that we will be diligent and disciplined to learn the ways of wisdom. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part eight of Skillful Living, Introducing Proverbs, a 12-part study in the book of Proverbs from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text for today is chapter four of the book of Proverbs, verses 10 through 19, which is subtitled, Seeking Wisdom Unto Salvation. Now, Christians may be puzzled by using the term salvation in the study of the Old Testament book of Proverbs, And you may be thinking this denotes a works-based salvation, doesn't it? Well, pastor is using salvation here in the final sense, ultimate salvation, the salvation to which we all strive. And quote, if we're not right with God, then no amount of effort can extract the wisdom contained in this book, end quote. Old Testament inspired wisdom often confronts its reader as difficult especially in the books of the law by Moses and prophetic books written by prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. When we're in Christ, however, the wisdom found in the Old Testament can be injected into our lives through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Here's part six of Skillful Living, Introducing Proverbs. Now, before we go any further and look at the the connection being played out for us in the poem, before we do that, We need to first state some presuppositions. We need to first state some assumptions that we make as we come to the book of Proverbs. I gave the the sermon this evening the title, Seeking Wisdom Unto Salvation. And without any context, if you read that, you might think, was he suggesting that there's a way by which we pursue wisdom and our efforts then obtain for us a right standing before God? The title maybe is a little bit provocative. It's not at all what I'm saying. I'm using salvation there in that sentence, seeking wisdom unto salvation in that final sense, ultimate salvation, the salvation to which we're all striving. And so the presupposition that we need to state as we move into any study in the book of Proverbs is that we come to this as Christians. We come to this as Christians who have been saved by grace. We come to the book of Proverbs as Christian scripture. It's designed in such a way that we assume that the reader is right with God. If we are not right with God, then no amount of effort will allow us to access the wisdom that is contained in this book. We cannot put into place the wisdom in this book in any eternally significant way if we are not first and foremost right with our maker. That is what we need to say up front. And and every week at this church, we rehearse the saving message of the gospel, and rightly so. Every week at this church, praise the Lord, we have those that don't know Christ among us. 
For the sake of completeness, the gospel by which we are saved is a simple message. We were made by a holy God. He fashioned us and he formed us, and yet we rebelled against him. We have rebelled against him such that the Bible says we are his enemies. In and of ourselves, we are his enemies, and there is nothing that we can do to fix that problem. It is the greatest problem that we have, and we are completely helpless to provide a remedy. But the holy God who fashioned us and was offended by our sin, in love, sent his son to earth to live amongst us a perfect life. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. And three days later, he rose again. And that simple message is the gospel that we are called to trust in. And it is when you trust in that man, Jesus Christ, his life, his ministry, his message, his death, his resurrection, when you look to him as the only way by which you'll be made right with God, then your sins are washed away. You have communion with that holy God. He declares you to be righteous. He declares you to be his child. And he gifts you his Holy Spirit. So that then we're in a position to open the book of Proverbs and access the wisdom that he has stored up for us here. Now with that assumption stated, that's how we come to this text. And I would just say, if you are here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus in a saving way, would you turn from your sin and cast yourself upon Christ for salvation? With that assumption stated, we then realize that upon receiving salvation, we're in a position where we start to look at the world through a biblical lens. Upon receiving salvation, we then try to make sense of our life and the world around us through a biblical lens. And one question that Christians may often ask is, how do I make sense of the things that seem so disconnected from tangible gospel ministry? I do know so many Christians that have struggled in the secular workplace to know, to what end am I doing this? Is there any point in this? I wish I could just be in ministry. And this poem provides the answer by saying, yes, yes, there is significance to every single detail of your life if you pursue it according to wisdom. Now, the poem is split into two halves. There is a first half which is positive from 10 through 13, and the second half which is negative and functions as a warning 14 through 17, and the last two verses are our conclusion. The first half I've just titled, Make Wisdom Your Life. That is the encouragement that we're given, make wisdom your life. And what Solomon is doing here, after initially giving us that connection in verse 10, he then starts to show how it might play out, how you can take advantage of that connection. He begins in verse 11 by simply saying that we need to harness the information. Verse 11, I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the path of uprightness. So Solomon is describing what has happened with him and his son over many hours of instruction. And for our part as the reader, we're not simply here to observe and to 
think upon those hours of instruction, but we receive this text and we as the reader now understand that there is, for us, an exhortation built into verse 11 that we would do the same. We have to also learn the way of wisdom. We need to be willing to be led in the path of uprightness. Notice that this implicit exhortation compels us towards what I would call a very intentional Christianity. When you read the book of Proverbs, when you dwell upon verse 11, what you understand is that God expects us to be very intentional in our pursuit of wisdom. He places a responsibility on us as believers to search out his principles for living well in a broken and fallen world. There is in this text here, just in verse 11 alone, a responsibility that we will be diligent and disciplined to learn the ways of wisdom, to learn in detail what God would have us do in the gray areas of our lives. We must consider carefully how we are to handle money, to make sure that the way in which we handle finances map exactly with the principles given in the book of Proverbs concerning money. We have to know what it is to be good and excellent relationally, how to pick good friends, how to be a good friend, who to avoid and who not to avoid, according to the wisdom in this book. We have to think about our workplace and how we as Christians are to conduct ourselves in the workplace, often in the gray areas, knowing that God has given us principles in this book to learn that. We cannot be lazy in these areas. When you read the book of Proverbs and you see all of the exhortations and the commands that Solomon is giving to his son, you could never conclude that God is content for you to be lazy in your pursuit of wisdom. Now, sadly, the trend within mainstream Christianity is quite the opposite. The trend has been for a number of years within mainstream Christianity, away from an intentional pursuit to understand the word of God, the wisdom literature, the trend has been to a generalization of the Christian faith, an anemic kind of Christianity, a real apathy towards God's word. Christians now just cloak their faith with one word, quite often love, as if the sum total of God's revelation is love other people. Many of you may have followed coverage of the, the royal wedding. We were at home in the UK, so I got to watch it from a real-life British living room. And of particular interest was the, the message, the sermon in the service. What would the Reverend Michael Curry say? Now, that man, he has a, a number of convictions that wouldn't align with ours with respect to the Bible. He's put a lot of effort into uh, petitioning for the acceptance of homosexual marriage. And then he preaches at this wedding. He preaches very passionately, preaches for quite a long time, given the context. And he preaches a message that essentially says, love is the guiding principle. If you do anything in love, then God is pleased. Love is the thing that's going to transform the world. And I wasn't shocked to hear that message. I knew a little bit about his background, and I obviously knew the context of the wedding. I was not shocked to hear that message at that wedding. What shocked me was in the days after, having so many conversations with 
with well-intentioned, Bible-believing, conservative Christians who had not sensed any issue with the message. So many who thought that this passionate message was a wonderful presentation of the gospel. It was not a presentation of the gospel. A lack of discernment within conservative Christian circles. An inability to pick up what was missing, painfully missing from that message. Now, to be clear, with that example, we're very much talking about central issues, issues that are core to the faith and to the gospel. But I think the issue extends down to the realm of wisdom also. There is not just a lack of discernment with these primary doctrines and the nature of the gospel, but also amongst mainstream Christianity, an inability to figure out how it is that God would have us live our lives in the everyday routine. How do you disagree with somebody biblically? What are the principles that God has so clearly given us in his word by which we're to disagree with somebody biblically? How do you lend money and borrow money biblically? Wisdom issues clearly given to us in his word. And we're responsible to know them and to navigate through life adhering to them. How do you admonish a brother or a sister in Christ with excellence? What goes into that interaction? These are life's intangible moments. They're so often fleeting and so often we can put so little importance on them. And yet God has spoken about them in his word and has given us a responsibility to know what he expects. Friends, don't be content to live out an anemic, thin Christianity. We ever look to Christ and we gaze upon him and we ever strive to obey his commands towards holiness and sanctification. And we also pursue wisdom. Understanding that the daily decisions we make do have a part to play in the big picture. Now, you might say, well, that's a whole lot of knowledge and, and not much application, but that's exactly why Solomon carries on in his poem. From verse 11 to 12, he now says, we don't just harness the information, but we must set it to work. Verse 12, when you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. Again, Solomon's playing out what has occurred between him and his son. We receive this poem understanding that we must do likewise. Don't miss the exhortation that's given to us in God's word as we look at the relationship here between Solomon and his son. We are to walk and step and to run according to wisdom. And notice the verbs in that verse. You walk, you step, you're not hampered, you run and are not stumbled. It's almost as if within that one verse, Solomon is playing out the progression of the young man's life. So when you're young, you will make mistakes and you will trip and you will fall regularly. But you get up and you brush yourself off and you go again. And son, you, you do it according to wisdom and know this, when you get older, you will run. As you constantly, faithfully apply my words, the wisdom that is contained in this book, Solomon says, then you will run. 
And for us as Christians receiving this, understanding that we have a responsibility to exercise biblical wisdom, if the exhortation is to exercise biblical wisdom, the commendation, the appeal, is to know that wisdom allows us as Christians to run. Biblical wisdom allows Christians to run in life, to leap and to bound, to embrace life with all its fullness, to live a free life. Biblical wisdom doesn't hinder you. It frees you up to live the life that God wants you to live. Or to put it another way, it does not honor the Lord to live a half-hearted, weak and wet Christianity. God is not pleased to see his children limping between two opinions, indecisive as to which path to choose in every situation, failing to make any real gains for the gospel. But rather he wants you To run, Christians of all people should be living life to its fullest. And you can only do that when you harness wisdom. Think about what Solomon's already taught us in the book of Ecclesiastes. It is very helpful to read Proverbs alongside the book of Ecclesiastes and even alongside the book of Kings, which gives us the narrative of his life, and to see all of the wonderful relationships and connections. In Ecclesiastes 9, Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. I love that. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Give yourself to something, but understand, measure that commandment with the fact that you cannot successfully navigate through all of the contours of life unless you have clear biblical principles of wisdom laid out in your mind, in your thinking. If you run at it as hard as you can and you're naive as to wisdom, you will stumble over and over again and your life will be one that dishonors the Lord. Either that or you will simply lack confidence as a Christian. You won't know how to put God's best on display in the gray areas. Let me just illustrate with what might look something like your daily life. My guess is you don't get to proclaim Christ every hour of every day in the office. And that's okay because we have a responsibility. We're being paid by our employer and we honor that. And it's not always wise to be trying to evangelize in the workspace. My guess is, similarly, your conversations around the dinner table with your children are not always centered around the gospel rehearsing Bible stories. And that's okay, because there's other things that have to be talked about. And on a similar note, my guess is that your conversations with your spouse are not always talking about how it is that you might further your ministry in the church and and better and more fully contribute to the life here. And that's okay because life keeps happening and there are things that you just have to talk about and there's, there's work and there's business that needs to get done. And so the question arises again, as you look at all of those times when you're not necessarily setting forth Christ in an explicit manner, You just have to do your work right now. The question becomes, how do I do it in such a way that I really am putting God's glory on display? How do I do it in such a way that I'm honoring the Lord to the utmost? You're in a meeting at work. The room is full of people. You're the only Christian there. 
You have to do the work of the meeting. This is not your opportunity to share the gospel. You're in a meeting and there's work to be done. So, so how do you go about that meeting that's going to be distinctly different from those around you? It's not the time to be sharing the gospel. So, so what are you doing in that meeting that's any different from any other believer in the room? And the answer is you're conducting yourself according to the principles of wisdom. Wisdom comes into play and it has such a part to play in your testimony and in the big picture purposes of the Lord. And so, in that meeting, just by way of example, you speak, but you only speak when you know that what you're saying is completely true. You only speak when you have verified the facts, and you are content to hold your tongue when you're uncertain as to the truth of something. Why? Because you've read the book of Proverbs. And you've seen that over and over again in these chapters, one principle that comes out is that it's the wise man who speaks truth and the foolish man that speaks that which is false. So you commit to living out that principle. Well, then in the midst of that meeting, you realize that there's something you don't know. And you're willing as a Christian to voice your ignorance. You're willing to say, I need some help. You're willing, unlike many others in the room, to speak up and say, could I just lean on your knowledge here? Why? Because you've read the book of Proverbs, and one principle that stands out to you is that the wise man is willing to acknowledge his dependence on others. And it is the foolish man that tries to go it alone. And if we carry on the illustration, there's a point in the meeting where somebody needs to correct you, maybe rebuke you in a work context. And your response in that moment is so key. And you've read the book of Proverbs, and though your flesh is fighting against the principle given here, and you want to argue back, you realize that one of the principles that you are responsible for living out is that you're willing to receive correction. And now just think about that. In one hour of meeting time, you've conducted yourself according to biblical principles, and I would say you've made gains for the gospel. I guarantee you, if you've been faithful to your profession of faith, if you have made it known that you are a Christian, I guarantee there are those that are watching you. They are watching to see how you behave. And there'll be times and opportunities when you get to tell them the glorious good news. There are other times when you can't and you must conduct yourself according to wisdom. And as you do so, you will be the aroma of Christ to them. There'll be something markedly different about your life. And you are making connections between the small and the mundane and the big picture purposes of the Lord. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul has reminded us that we must faithfully apply the words we read in the book of Proverbs. Solomon has said, learn excellence and you will run. This is in the way the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church when he compared the Christian life to an Olympic race. How are we living in front of a watching world? Don't like being watched? Well, Paul in his letter to the Romans chapter 1 said that, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation to all who believe. We need to fix our gaze on the Lord, remembering that this pursuit of excellence will always involve turning away from something. If you'd like to learn more about following God in wise living, come to our website, 
TimelessTruthToday.org. Select Broadcasts, and there we have a free audio archive where you'll find an abundance of Scripture wisdom to help you. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If this solid Bible teaching is a benefit to your walk with Jesus, would you consider making a financial gift to this outreach ministry? You see, you'll become part of what God is doing to reach thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus. To make your gift of any amount, go to TimelessTruthToday.org and select Donate. Thank you for your consideration. Tomorrow we continue in our 12-part series with Part 9 of Skillful Living, Introducing Proverbs, as Pastor Paul continues to share how we can live out our lives running hard for God's excellence. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening.